Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. With a very special episode with none other than Phil Hack talking about that whole GitHub thing. But GitHub uh, thing? What GitHub uh, thing? You know what GitHub thing. Everybody's talking about it. We'll, uh, we'll get to that a in a second. A billion here, a billion there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. <laughs> it didn't take that much to hire him back. Come on. It's a little bit. Right? A little bit. All right. Well, anyway, we have this thing called Better Know a Framework that we do first. So go ahead and roll the funky music. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? So uh, this is the Visual Studio IntelliCode package that you can hmm. download for Visual Studio from Microsoft Dev Labs. And uh, it's a tool that enhances IntelliSense. And one of the things that it does is uh, it has insights based on understanding your code combined with machine learning. So think about this. When you go to uh, for statement completion in IntelliSense, like you have a string in string dot, wouldn't it be cool if at the top of the list before aggregate or all or any, that list starts... The alphabetical list. Yeah, the alphabetical. Wouldn't it be cool if you get the list of um, methods that you call most frequently? Oh, right. Or even contextually, like, what would be the likely method you're calling here? Exactly, exactly. So, it's got a little bit of contextual recommendation happening here. Uh, and that's the main feature right now. But, of course, it's just it's just getting going. It works with Visual Studio 2017 version 15.7 and above. Uh, as of this recording, it was last updated on June 7th. So, it's pretty okay. recent. Pretty current, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I thought it was very cool. I haven't put it in, but you know, I will make an observation. Mm-hmm. So, how many times you call a particular number is that machine learning? <laughs> I mean, a particular method. Yeah, uh, I think that's a stretch. For it is. A, well, I don't know. It's, it's a little pro- simple. It, I'm sure they use machine learning, but it just speaks to this um, tendency in in popular code and tools and things to you know to make anything that has any kind of smart code. Machine learning, all right, or artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence. Yeah. I also, but I do appreciate the sentiment that you know Microsoft has done a good job of uh, spreading IntelliSense around, right? Like oh, Visual yeah. Studio Code and so forth. So to come back into Visual Studio and say, let's go to the next level with this. Yep. Can we get to the point? You know, well, how far away are we from this? Just saying, how about I write that code for you? Yes. Like, I'll just finish that <laughs> method for you. You know how a surgeon, you know, gets the assistant to okay, stitch it up. Yeah, right. right. You can uh, you can finish off my delegates here. Or just something pop up. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> I know where you're going. Let it's... me do that for you. Yeah, you look like you're screwing up a calling tree <laughs> tree again. Can I fix that for you? Clip me for Visual Studio. <laughs> That's it. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we've gone to a dark place with this. It oh. seemed like such a good idea, and then it became Clippy. Uh, and if especially, it would be annoying if Clippy was right. You know, hey, of you should Clippy's really use generics right. for that. <laughs> <laughs> Let me rewrite that for you with generics. This would be so much easier if you did it my way. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, let me show you a link expression that will save you fifteen lines. <laughs> All right. That's Darkness. what I got. Who's talking to us, Richard? Uh, something a little different for our comment today. I'm not going to grab this from a show per se. This is actually a blog post hmm. from Jiri Sintira, and I hope I pronounced your name correctly. His blog name is Tabs Over Spaces. Nice. So, love it, love it, love it. And this is what he said in his blog post. I was listening to the .NET Rocks podcast uh, yesterday, and the talk went a little bit off topic. No. <laughs> <I'm gonna laughs> That's what I want to do. 
Although he does say parenthetically, which is fine for me. One interesting question popped up. How many curved monitors you'd need to make a full circle? And I immediately thought, that should be easy to calculate. Oh. <laughs> uh, sadly, I forgot which monitor exactly the guys were talking about. And I got too bored to try and listen again. So I took the number one curved monitor bigger than 30 inches. So clearly a man after my own heart that immediately goes to the largest possible monitor you can find. Right. Uh, which was the Samsung C47HG90, which, by the way, is a 49-inch curved monitor. <laughs> That's a beast. Do they pay you to mention this thing in every show? Because <laughs> It's a different monitor. This is a different one. Oh, this is a different one. Yeah, yeah, no. I've got the Dell 43. This is the 49-inch curved. Cha-ching. <laughs> he goes on to do the math around the circumference for the, actually does two different monitors. One is a 49, the other one is a much more normal 34. Okay. And, uh, you know, checks their radius, figures it out. And it turns out if you, if you use the 49, you'll need 10 of them to go all the way around you. And if you use the 34, you'll need 15. It doesn't seem like a lot, does it? It doesn't seem like, yeah. Suddenly I'm looking around my room thinking, I could probably fit that in here. Huh. Now, you no, know, what could you drive them with, though? You'd have he to does have quite reasonably says, if you're going to do this, don't forget to order a, quote, few graphics cards. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'm also wondering about the radiation effects of a, literally being surrounded by monitors all aimed at you. Yeah. But, ah, it's so tempting. Well, you know, what would be really cool, you combine this with some cameras or connects or something, and they only turn on as you swivel around. Right? Oh. So they sort of... <laughs> I love it. The <laughs> monitors follow your eyes. That's right. Yeah. Fun. So, Jiri, uh, thank you so much for your comment. I'd love to send you a copy of Music to Code By. So I'm writing a comment on your blog post that we read this on the show. And if you get in touch with me, I'll hook you up with a copy of Music to Code By. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We promise not to hack them. Hack them. Nice. Hack them. Speaking of hack, it's time to uh, bring Phil back. Uh, that's Phil Hack back onto .NET Rocks. Uh, Phil still works at GitHub as the director of client apps, a group that consists of the desktop, Atom, Electron, and editor tools teams. Prior to that, he was a senior program manager at Microsoft, responsible for shipping ASP.NET MVC and NuGet. And these projects were released under open source licenses and helped serve as examples to other teams for how to ship open source software. I blame you for all of this, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> I readily accept all of your blame. Good, good. Nice. So, yeah, what is this news that we've been hearing on the Twitters and in social media? What happened? Oh, I don't know. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, you Everything's uh, the same. No comment. No. <laughs> nice. A, a friend, a friend of mine, pinged me the other day, and he goes, "Is it just me, or has Phil Hack been really hilarious on uh, Twitter the past day or so?" And I'm like, <laughs> "Yeah, yeah, it kind of has." Well, you know, I've had a lot of jokes pen up. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, in a situation where you're funnier than you realized. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, it turns out that Microsoft has uh, signed a, an agreement to purchase GitHub 
for $7.5 billion of Microsoft stock. And, um, you know, as such, uh, that's good news, I think, for us. Um, mm-hmm. I can go into that later. But, uh, you know, one thing to be clear is, like, it's the intent to acquire at this point. So we still have, like, the regulatory period, you know, got to get the EU and SEC and everybody to be like, yeah, that's fine. And then it will happen. So I am not, I am still a GitHub employee. We're still, you know, completely independent. Uh, well, as next- of Friday, anyway, last Friday, this is Tuesday, it comes out on the 12th. We're recording this on the 8th. So what happened Monday and Tuesday? We don't really know. So, I mean, for the next six months, while with the regulatory period, we're completely, you know, we're completely independent. And then in six months, uh, we become uh, a wholly owned subsidiary, very, very uh, flashy word there, wholly mm. owned subsidiary of uh, Microsoft. Uh, the cool thing about that is that we will remain independent. Um, we're still going to be GitHub. The model that I tell people to look at is like a lot like how LinkedIn is, you know, people don't think of it as Microsoft LinkedIn, it's LinkedIn. And so, you know, I won't actually... It won't. It's not yet clear exactly what that means for us as individuals. As I understand it, I will be a GitHub employee. I won't be a Microsoft employee per se. Although um, I hope I will have access to uh, all the amazing resources that Microsoft can come to bear on a problem or uh, opportunity. You know, sh- yeah. should we need that. So what we can look forward to is the uh, GitHub client for Windows working as good as Skype. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a little cynical. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. We oh, love Skype. Man. We're using it right now, as a matter of fact. Yeah, we're using Skype right now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, the new Skype is uh, built on Electron. And uh, hmm. yeah, there's a lot of uh, interesting Microsoft apps built on Electron right now, like uh, VS Code, obviously. But yeah. uh, Skype or Teams is built on it. Um, mm-hmm. I've heard the Skype client is, or the new Skype client, Um, but I digress. Yeah. I think Desktop's a great product. If you haven't tried it recently, like, it's fast, it's fluid, it's, uh, I think my favorite thing about it right now is that we're getting a ton of open source contributions, people outside of GitHub uh, contributing to make it better and kind of make it theirs, so to speak. And, yeah, we'll continue that work. Okay. And so, what has the been the general response from the GitHub user population? Oh, GitHub users, yeah. I, you know, it's, I think it's been mixed. I think you know, judging by my feed, mostly positive. Um, the Linux Foundation wrote a really great post just yesterday, I think, talking about um, how they see this as a good thing. I think there's a lot of sense of uh, you know, GitHub will not go you know this is assurance that github will not go away right that it's and that microsoft is a good steward now you have a lot of folks of course who are um you know i would like in some respects the old guard who've like seen what microsoft has done in the past and are maybe a little wary or mistrustful um but i really like uh what nat said about it so nat friedman our future new ceo currently at Microsoft, acquired from Xamarin, um, who has a long track record in the open source community. He had a really good yeah. phrase where he said, um, you know, look, I'm not asking for your trust. I expect to earn it. And uh, I think that's a great attitude to take. I've really been impressed with um, 
Microsoft in the last year. I've really been impressed with Satya, uh, with Scott Guthrie. I think yep. they're all, you know, like they are now in charge and they are of the guard that really embraced and understood open source. Even during the bomber era, you know, Guthrie was leading that charge, right? He was, so you worked you know, for him, right? Back in the yeah, day. Yeah, that's who. Yeah, he was the one who recruited me to Microsoft mm. and uh, way back when, you know, back in the old days. Uh, and uh, I remember, like, uh, I think I've told this story before, but, um, you know, Miguel de Casa, uh, who has been a longtime business partner of Nat and also well-known in the open source community. Yep. He and I, uh, you know, have a history of plotting behind the scenes. And, you know, I was mm-hmm. t- asking him all these questions like, okay, how do I build a case to go open source ASP.NET on MVC and accept contribution? Or first, I, was, I think I was working on the case to open source it under a permissive license, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, giving me all this, you know, uh, all this input into like how to make a strong case for that. And I came in like, you know, like fired up in a Guthrie's office and I was like, I want to make ASP.NET MVC open source and here's why. And before I could really enumerate the reasons, he's like, yeah, okay, I- I'm already talking to uh, Brian Goldfarb about this. And I was like, yeah. what? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, wow. I didn't hire you by accident. <laughs> yeah. He had a plan. He had a plan. And uh, I was really excited about that. Like, you know, like a lot of people have said, you know, oh, was the embracing of open source by Microsoft, like something that was top down or bottom up. And I really think it was a mixture of both. Right. It came Mm -hmm. from people like me, uh, Rob Connery, Scott Hanselman, um, Glenn Block. uh, You know, too many to name. Um, It's funny. I'm blanking on the Jim Hugenin. uh, uh, Wix. Yeah, Rob yeah. Benching. Yeah, so it came from I think that the the groundswell of of those gr- those groups, as well as you know Guthrie seeing that as being the future at a very early time, and you know in a way like he was pushing for it all along. Uh, in some ways, you know some of the things had to bite his time, right? Like the it takes time for you'd be surprised, but it takes time for an entrenched hundred thousand person organization to change overnight whoa <laughs> no really wow yeah. <laughs> but wow. now we're seeing the fruits of that and i you know like when i think about like sometimes you know it may feel like a, a company a group a corporation a whatever can't change you know you you look at uh the wide change of microsoft and you realize like you know it you need to be patient you need to be persistent but you know organizations groups teams countries hopefully you know they can all change yeah yeah no it does it does happen and uh you know i've been working on the on the book for a while now and it is very interesting to see that energy sort of arrive in 2007 with i mean mvc to me seems like it was always destined to try and do something open sourcey that's also when codeplex comes along and then just this piling on uh, including yourself of these open source people but it it took 10 years. Like, it, it's taken a long time. Yeah. Phil, let's talk about Adam. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what's going to happen there? Uh, I think the good news is that uh, we're going to continue to invest in Adam. Uh, Nat, so Nat Friedman had a really great uh, Reddit AMA yesterday. And uh, that question came up, right? What What's going to happen with Adam? And he had a really great analogy. He said that developers, now this may also surprise you. But developers are really particular about their setup. (laughs) 
And no. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm just, I'm just Shocker. dropping the truth bombs, the shockers. One bomb after the other today, Mr. Hack. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and and choosing an editor is a very personal decision. And you know, like, look at the uh, the holy wars that have flared up between <laughs> Emacs and Vim. You know, Sublime <laughs> versus Atom versus VS Code. And the thing is, like, there's a large, healthy. We have a lot of users of Atom who yeah. love it. Um, you know, I think you know VS Code is amazing. I love VS Code, but there's no reason that we can't have two editors uh, serving two communities. And um, Nat, you know, Nat said pretty much he, in his words, he said like, you know, as long as there's a community that loves and is enthusiastic about Atom, we'll continue to support it. And uh, yeah. we do have that community. Um, you know, like I'm, I, you know, I may be biased, but I personally, I love using Atom. I use it all the time. I really like it. It's, you know, it has some strengths when you, you know, like VS Code obviously has some strengths over Atom, but Atom has some strengths over VS Code. And I think one sure. of those examples right now is it's extremely extensible, uh, which, you know, we're learning that extensibility comes at a cost, but, uh, you know, we can, we can mitigate that. It, it makes me wonder, I mean, these are all open source projects anyway. How would you quote unquote kill them in the first place? Yeah, like, what does that just, even mean? It's just fear. You, yeah, we can't. We we couldn't, right? Yeah, we're not doing that. You know, um, that's one of the benefits of Adam being open source is that we really can't kill it. Mm. Yeah, and and have no desire to in the first place. Yeah, and we have no desire to. Phil, give me a moment here just for this very important message. Hey, this is Carl. One of our sponsors today, Datadog, is a cloud monitoring platform bringing full visibility to dynamic infrastructure, applications, and now logging. Create beautiful dashboards, set powerful machine learning-based alerts, and collaborate with your team to resolve performance issues. Datadog integrates seamlessly with more than 200 technologies, including Azure, Docker, PagerDuty, and Slack. With fast installation setup, plus APIs and open source libraries for custom instrumentation, Datadog makes it easy for teams to monitor every layer of their stack in one place. But don't take our word for it. Start a free trial today, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Visit dd.netrocks.com to get started. And we're back. It's Richard Campbell, Carl Franklin. You're listening to .NET Rocks. We got Phil Hack back. Hack. And apparently... He's not going to be a Microsoft employee anytime soon. Because so Hanselman was wrong when he said, "Lad, geez, seven point five is an awful lot to pay for Phil Hack." <laughs> well, he was wrong because it's it's not an awful lot to pay. Come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's Phil Hack we're talking about here. Jeez, come on. Hey, you know he wants me back too. He misses me so much. Yeah. Well, and I mean, part of this is you do live in the you know, Seattle slash Redmond area and commute down to GitHub headquarters in San Francisco, right? That's correct. Yeah. I live so, two miles from the Redmond campus of Microsoft. So I often, you know, go over there to meet with folks because we have existing partnerships, you know, that we've been working on for the past few years. So, sure. um, you know, like, you know, I, Earlier, you said I'm not a Microsoft. I won't become a Microsoft employee. Like I don't know exactly the details of all that. Like I just know that you know I'll remain an employee of a wholly owned subsidiary. I don't know right. what that means per se. But I mean, the good news I think for me is that like you know these are all folks I have a long history of working with. Sure. I continue to work with them even as uh, you know I became a GitHub employee. And I you know really look forward to being a part of the whole Microsoft family again. Uh, let's 
you know, we'll call it that way, right? Like part of the sure. whole thing and, you know, having even more direct inside access to folks, uh, you know, I was, I was telling my team, like, we can't comment on like what things will be like in the future. Like we're in this, as I mentioned before, we're in this regulatory period, we're still independent. Yep. We need to not make any plans, uh, you know, keep doing business as usual, so to speak, not make any plans with direction from Microsoft or, you know, yada, yada, right? Um, but it's, you know, really hard for me not to look ahead and say, oh, uh, what things will become available? What opportunities will be available when the acquisition does close? Sure. Uh, you know, I told my team, like, you know, uh, several of my teams use TypeScript. We're big fans of TypeScript. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, there's this guy, Anders Hausberg there, who uh, created that, you know. <laughs> he knows a few things. Uh, yeah, one of my teams does C-sharp. Uh, hey, Anders again. <laughs> yeah, and Mads. Yeah, we have teams who, uh, you know, are using Haskell for some tasks, right? Mm -hmm. uh, oh, Simon Payton Jones works at Microsoft, right? So there's a lot of amazing people over there and amazing projects. Uh, I did a recent thing with, um, you know, Microsoft Cognitive Services and Azure Functions. I wrote a blog post about it. Uh, what I did was I, um, I was curious about, you know, like I've, <laughs> it's really ironic. So when I was at Microsoft, I worked on ASP.NET and MVC. I was like, you know, just completely immersed in the web. And then I joined right. GitHub and I'm, I'm doing WPF initially and I'm doing all client, <laughs> like my org is client apps, right? Like I'm just completely into client now. And I was like, man, I'm really being passed by by all this new tech, right? We got serverless functions, we got Kubernetes, we got containers. And I'm just like, I'm, you know, like I'm reading about it. I understand roughly what the problems they solve, but I'm not in there doing it. So that's, I think, where you get the deeper level of understanding. Yeah, for sure. And so yeah. I was like, okay, I got to do something. So I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to write an Azure function uh, to do something interesting. Oh, look, Azure functions has specific support for uh github um webhooks right and mm. and it's really good right like you just create a function you uh it gives you the the code to put in the github side for your repo and now you know every you whatever events you subscribe to on the github side uh are calling your function and so i thought oh okay what am i going to do in this function oh why you know it'd be kind of fun just to play around with this sentiment analysis and issue comments yeah and uh because you know people get really uh salty get pretty wound or really up. oh yeah yeah they wound up but they also get really happy right so mm. um so what i did was i called a you know i hooked it up to microsoft cognitive services um as a microsoft mvp i get a little bit of credit for the uh azure so um i called into their cognitive services to do sentiment analysis on comments and as a proof of concept i would edit the comment with the sentiment analysis score and the reason I say proof of con uh, concept is it's really cool what you can and can't do with ML and AI, but it, you know the stuff you can do doesn't mean you should do it, right? Like I don't <laughs> know, you know, I could imagine like you know if a bot responds to your tone in an issue that that might not exactly help the situation, <laughs> right? But, yeah, I generally uh, you know, found that saying wow, wow, wow back to a critical comment in a in a in a post like that not not constructive <laughs> yeah like like what does this robot know about human emotion right <laughs> but 
I, I could imagine like it being a thing where like, hey, if a if a sentiment score sh- scored this negative, alert the maintainer that you may want to jump in here, yeah. right? Like that might be more productive use of it. So as a proof of concept, it would go in and edit it and say, hey, thanks for your positive comment or hey there, let's not be so rude. But, you know, it's really clear that this is just me playing around and it had the sentiment score there. Yeah, the, I think the better thing is that notifiers, like any extreme emotion is worth being notified on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm digressing again. But like the whole point of this whole story is I had so much fun hooking these things up together and it was so easy. And like that that set of like cognitive services, like having that available to our products in a holistic, you know, intentional way could be really interesting. Have you experienced the Don Rickles bot? just constantly insults you in, in a contextual <laughs> smart way well well that's like every conversation i have with hanselman you know <laughs> <laughs> contextual and smart but still insulting <laughs> all right yeah, like it's it's really how funny his insults are to me you know <laughs> right <laughs> and, and very politically correct too that oh, was yeah. politically yes, yes. correct polite insult you've ever had oh man that's so funny afterwards you wonder did i just get insulted i don't know not sure i feel really but i feel really good about myself anyway (laughs) (laughs) like how did he insult me yet like still honor my humanity (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness hey richard yeah buddy guess what time it is now uh it must be that happy time again yeah Time to get up out of the sack, jump in the back, roll down the window a crack, give my face a smack and my back a whack. I'm having a full-blown hack attack. Awesome. You're you're (laughs) rapping today. Not really. Eh, Something. It's not even close. (laughs) It's actually (laughs) time to to give- You just had to lay down a funky beat behind that, man. A little funky beat, maybe. It's actually time to give away a Telerik- (laughs) What'd you say? (laughs) You're like Big Shaq. <laughs> <laughs> I knew yeah, I missed rap- one. <laughs> he, had a missed bit, one. he had a bit of a rap career as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft toolkit to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about Conversational UI from Progress Telerik and Kendo UI. Conversational UI are chatbot framework agnostic user interface controls and components that enable .NET and JavaScript developers to create modern conversational chatbot experiences in their web, mobile, and desktop applications. The industry's first package set of user interface components built specifically for chatbots are available as part of the company's Telerik ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, ASP.NET Core, WinForms, WPF, Xamarin products, and Kendo UI for jQuery, Angular, Vue, React, PHP, and JSP libraries. In other words, everything. (laughs) By implementing key UI design features such as calendars, date pickers, list views, and others that are included in the tool sets, Developers will be able to improve chatbot conversation through visual elements that enhance the natural flow of conversation. For more information on this very cool product, check out Telerik.com slash conversational dash UI. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Pear B. Anderson. Congratulations, Pear. 
Congratulations, Pear. Uh, Pear just won the Telerik DevCraft Toolkit. That's a big pile of awesome from our friends over there just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you'd like to join, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to sign up to win. We also like to ask our guests, Phil, of course, you know what's coming. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology, what are you going to buy? Oh, man, that's a great question once again. And I knew you were going to ask me this, and I'm, st- I'm still struggling to come up with the answer. Uh, I'll tell you something I just bought that I like. You mentioned curved monitors. I got the AOS 40-inch C4008 View 8 or something like that, and I love it. I think, you know, maybe I'd go for an even larger <laughs> curved monitor. More of them. More of them. Yeah. I, you know what? Actually, I like the idea of the, the 10 monitors surrounding me. Right. So, like, uh, I don't know if 5,000 is enough, but maybe I'd, like, build a semicircle of monitors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The video cards will break you. But other than that. Yeah. I mean, it'd be great because, you know, I get that, like, uh, peripheral vision while developing my tan at the same time. Nice. <laughs> But I kind of, yeah, you're going to always think there's something coming out of the corner of your eye, but now it's actually going to be true. There's always something going on at the corner of your eye. I just think, oh, God, playing Fortnite with that setup. Oh, man. <laughs> well, the first thing you learn is no mouse pad is big enough. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It's time to yeah. go to the rollerball. I mean, really, what we what we really want to talk about here is Fortnite, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I, j- I just invented something really cool. So now you have this circle of monitors. Now, what if they were on a conveyor belt? So when you move the mouse, like to the right, everything shifts to the left. So you never have to move. The monitors move. Now that's cool. Just thinking that of ways to cool. blow money. <laughs> I need that in my life. I, I took a quick peek through the uh, that AMA that Nat did. Man, talk about the right guy in the right spot. You, oh, you know, yeah. he's well. He's been a friend of GitHub long before he was part of Microsoft. But back in the Xam- even before the Xamarin days, for that matter, and and certainly knows the product backward and forward. Has been mm. a part of its history. Like definitely square peg and square hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, he he was. I remember uh, uh, he was at our. Uh, when we shipped GitHub for Windows 1.0, we had a party at the Ferry Building in uh, San Francisco, and he and Miguel were there to celebrate with us. So uh, he's been around a long time, you know, like a, a big uh, uh, booster for GitHub. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, and I guess the silly part about anybody talking with any of the fear around that here is, you know, Microsoft has been huge on GitHub. We've done the show with Brian Harry. We were talking about them contributing the virtual file system services into Git yeah. because of Windows, because they needed to store a 300 gigabyte source repository for Windows. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is an interesting problem to just imagine. So I imagine you had 300 gigabytes of source code. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, the uh, one, like, I think they called it the one engineering effort within uh, Microsoft. I mean, there's a lot about not just moving to Git, but like getting consistent across how they engineer things. And I remember reading some article a while back where it used to take more than 24 hours to do a daily, quote unquote, build of Windows. Yeah. And uh, How's that I don't happening? know what they have it down to now, but it's got to be better than that. <laughs> right. Yeah, you would hope. 
Yeah. I remember <laughs> yeah. we've done 15 shows with you, Mr. Hack. This will be the number 16. And I remember before you went to GitHub, when you were on the, the Ship It team for Studio, like you told the story of trying to get to a point when everything is assembled and able to ship. Mm. And just that, the, the amount of testing and the cycle time involved in that and the, the number of factors that you had to manage together to make it happen. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, the ship room. Yeah. The ship room. Yeah, was, right, right. Uh, that was a fun time. I've forgotten all about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks, no, Richard. I, I hear some PTSD in your voice there, my friend. <laughs> so, Phil, you obviously have a history with Visual Studio, and you that's you know you're in your wheelhouse. What uh, What's the latest interactions or work between GitHub and Visual Studio? Uh, yeah, you know, we had ship the github for visual studio extension a while back and uh we've continued to improve it um the latest stuff that i've been really excited about is we brought pull requests into visual studio in a deeper way so for example when you go to the uh um team explorer uh, little tab or whatever and you click pull requests you can see a list of pull requests uh, you can check out a pull request, and that'll check out the branch associated with the pull request. And then you can even see uh, review comments uh, that are on GitHub in there, and then you can add new review comments. So if you click on a diff, you know, like a change file within a pull request, you'll see the the diff show up. You can actually, in the, in the diff editor, you can actually click the gutter and add a new comment and then publish it, and that'll add, be added to the GitHub pull request. And so... Uh, you know, for those of you who live in your editor, like, you know, more and more, you never have to leave. Um, I do recommend going out, getting some sunshine, uh, you know, cleaning up the ball of uh, the cans of Coke on the floor. But, uh, you know, more and more, the things you want to do are, are available at your fingertips within the editor. Nice. That's cool. Well, and, and just uh, that's what you mean by deep integration, then. It's not just that I could get my source repository and get to work, but that I could actually interact on that social aspect of how GitHub operates, which I think is super powerful. Yeah, like the guiding principle here is we really want to focus on the things that are um, sort of value add and, and enhanced by being in the editor. Like we right. don't want to bring all of GitHub.com into your editor because that wouldn't make any sense. But there are certain things that make a lot of sense to be in your editor. For example, if someone comments on a pull request on a line of code that you're working on, wouldn't it be nice to know that someone commented on that or down the road that someone changed that in mm. their local branch and you may be, you know, uh, due for a conflict? Like, you know, we don't have any of that just yet, but that's the kind of thinking we're doing about, like, what uh, can GitHub bring to the experience on your local machine? Uh, doing code reviews is a really good example. So, to you know, in the past, I've done a lot of code reviews fully on GitHub.com. I look at the code, you know, you know, a lot of times, you know, we do this annoying thing where we just comment on the style, you know, like let a linter do that, let a, you know, FX cop do that, right? Um, but, you know, we'll also try to find like, oh, this looks like that would be a bug or this does is incorrect. But it's no substitute for pulling that code into your machine and running it and stepping through it and trying it out as well, right? Yeah. And we've done a lot of things in the past to improve that experience. If you go to, if you've installed and authenticated with the GitHub extension for Visual Studio, or if you've used our GitHub desktop product, on GitHub.com, when you're looking at a PR at the bottom there, it, it's a little bit, I think we can make this a little more prominent, but there's that view this PR on desktop, mm. right? 
you click that one click, it launches desktop uh, using URL protocol handler. Uh, and then it checks out that branch. And then in, from desktop, you could open it in Visual Studio or Atom or wherever. Um, then now you've got it locally. And in Visual Studio, you know, you step through the debugger and all that. And now you can start adding comments to that PR yep. uh, directly from Visual Studio. So yep. that, you know, that bridging between the web and your desktop and uh, creating that, you know, that seamless experience is what we're after. Very good. So, so what I'm hearing is things aren't really going to change all that much for GitHub users. No, I mean, hopefully, you know, the changes that will happen are all for the better. Yeah, I mean, when you when you look at some of the tweets of some people that uh, are just sort of freaking out over this stuff, it just it's just fear. Like it doesn't make any sense. You know, I'm I'm really happy that uh, Microsoft is putting its dollars behind GitHub. That just ensures that it's going to be around for a long time. I agree. I think, you know, I can understand some of the fear, some of the concern. Um, I think, you know, like you said, if you if you take a, a hard look at it, you take a look at recent history, you take a look at, you know, a lot of these things, you realize, uh, I think Paul Ford wrote a really good article that this is a good thing. And he kind of dispels some of the uh, so-called myths, like some of the things that some of the you know bad things that Microsoft has done in the past have actually sort of grown in scale versus what actually happened, right? You know, like there's that yeah. effect that perception is doesn't reflect reality. But, you know, regardless, like, you know, I think people are making rational decisions based on their perceptions. I think if you dig into it, you start to realize like, oh, maybe your perception is a little bit off or uh, maybe things, you know, have changed and you still have a, a, an outdated perception. I think that, you know, proof will be in the pudding, right? Like the proof will be as we move forward, and as GitHub remains independent, and as you know, GitHub improves, um, especially under Nat's leadership, you know, future leadership, like people will come around and see that you know these worries were unfounded. Yeah, um, I'm really excited about that time. I mean, you know, look at it this way. Another way to look at it is uh, so many teams at Microsoft use GitHub every single day for their work. Right. I mean. Microsoft employees themselves would be pissed off if we ruined GitHub. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, uh, in the Reddit AMA, somebody asked Nat point blank, why was Microsoft so anti-open source for so long? And Nat's response was fear. Interesting. Yeah. And now, you know, you have all these people who are afraid of what Microsoft is going to do. Yeah. No, I think... I think he answered it really well. Yeah. Something you said earlier before the break, uh, Phil, we were talking about how projects change and so forth. And this idea that there are a lot of people, including at Microsoft today, that that are paid to work on projects that live in GitHub. Do you see this kind of cultural shift going on in open source where open source is simply part of business? It's no longer just a volunteer contribution. And how, you know, how, what's that going to do to culture? Yeah, I see that. You know, like the other point I'd make... So I, I really like that answer that uh, Nat had. And one of the questions then is what changed? Like, why did Microsoft stop fearing? Right. If you look at the, you know, the recent history, it's because they changed their business model, right? Like, here's yeah. the other sort of, you know, like, quote, unquote, proof uh, of why this is a good thing is that under the old regime where Microsoft put all their eggs in the Windows office basket, right? open source was a threat, right? Mm -hmm. But now that, you know, their business more and more, or, you know, 
you know, and their future success is dependent primarily, I would say, on Azure. I mean, right. like the key components are, of Windows are now under Guthrie, right? Mm, he, right. Owns, he owns the whole cloud, uh, his server and AI and, and you know, like the I'm Windows. I'm pretty sure he owns everything these days, buddy. Like he, he owns all yeah, the things. I think he has like 60 something thousand in his org, you know, like I, re- I was like, man, when I joined Microsoft way back when he was just you know, a quote, lowly GM, but now he's you know, <laughs> got just about everything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, but when your business model is like, hey, we don't care what you run. We just want to try to earn earn the right to host your code on Azure. Right. Like that changes the ins- – there's no incentive to go in and be evil with uh, open source or kill open source, right? No. Uh, you got to look at their business model ultimately. Like, you know, that's how you know how people are incentivized to behave, right? Like their business is not advertising. It's not selling licenses to Windows. It's selling – you know, compute on Azure. It's selling right. these services, it's selling hosting, it's selling all that. Right. And as far as they're concerned, like, you know, at the end of the day, the dollars they make doesn't doesn't care like uh whether like it was made running Linux, Windows, uh you know, uh what whatever it, it may be, like as long as you're using Azure as far as they're concerned, right? Yeah. No, and and the beautiful thing about Azure and the whole sales model of Azure is it's based on consumption. So it's not a, you, you're not just selling a box. You're not locking someone in after a golf game. It's day to day, month to month, year to year. Are we providing you service that you value enough to actually use it? Right. And right. I had this thought the other day too. Is you know how they have these uh, the the thing that goes through your services and all of the resources and figures out how you can tighten up your monthly bill, right? And I thought to myself, well, why would they want to do that? Well, you know, because it's not efficient for for anybody for you to be utilizing a, a VM and have it running when it's doing nothing because not only is it not good for you and your bottom line, but that's a resource that can be used and utilized by somebody else. So it's in Microsoft's best interest to get that efficiency right. And part of that is, um, you know, is really good for customers because it's going to cost them less. Why pay for something you're not using? That's not going to make you a happy customer. Yeah, and I think that's a, also emblematic of like pennywise pound foolish, right? Like they don't want to be pennywise pound foolish, right? Like sure, they could, you know, uh, increase short-term results by charging you every single bit they could. But by giving you that tool to, uh, you know, optimize your expenditures, like you're a happier customer. You're more likely to stick around longer versus, you know, once you realize, oh, shoot, I still have that gym membership I never used, right. <laughs> but I'm still paying for, like, I'm going to cancel that shit right away. Excuse me. I'm going to cancel <laughs> that right away. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think like, that's the kind of thinking I wish we could see more of in the industry i think it's you know when you're a small startup sometimes it's hard right you're trying to make that next paycheck you know to your people and um it can be tough when you you know have a larger business and you have the means like long-term thinking has to become part of your dna and yeah you know a, a company that does this really well is amazon i read this thing interview with jeff bezos and he's like you know by the time you've seen our quarterly results you know we appreciate the congratulations but that that was all planning done three years ago you know we're already planning for what our results are going to be three years ahead right Right. and that is a level of maturity and uh, professionalism for an organization that you know 
I'd like to I'd like to get to like I'd like to see us you know planning three years ahead as well as one year ahead or mm-hmm. and such and I think that organizations like Microsoft are probably very f- far along in that road I don't know you know I know that they do three year planning as well um so uh, I think that's exciting because when you th- plan that far ahead you can take a more what's in our long term best interest approach versus like let's milk something and kill it and then you know. I mean, it's move a, on to the next thing. What's the next body? Right. I, I also, I mean, you know, feel that way about software too. Too much sprint to sprint and mm-hmm. not enough that longer horizon of what, how does, you know, there's where reliability and quality comes into play as soon as you start thinking about living with a piece of software for three or four years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sustainability is an important uh, concept there. And it, it, this idea that open source has just become part of business now, I think, I don't know that everyone's got their head around it viscerally, that they sort of get, this is business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, I think it's both, right? Like, uh, it's become important. A lot of open source starts as a hobby. It's scratch and itch. You know, I needed this. Um, but then, like, you know, you got to make a paycheck, right? And yep. uh, so you start using that at work and then it becomes invaluable to the companies and companies are now investing in it. Because here's the thing, like companies are coming around to the idea that we don't need to compete on every single line of code. What we want to compete is uh, on what differentiates us uh, and, uh, and the things that we have in common, we should collaborate on, right? Like mm-hmm. Git, you know, is a, is part of our core infrastructure. Uh, we're going to collaborate on that you know kubernetes um all these things like there's no need you know whoever has the best cloud container thing Mm -hmm. is not gonna uh help your business as a you know a a soda distributor or whatever right like you want to focus on your business domain and collaborate with the world on all the underlying infrastructure and tools that are pretty common and pretty uh undifferentiated well phil what's next for you living the big life living the dream limos margaritas hot tubs i know <laughs> monitors <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know not not a lot changes uh, i uh i'm more focused on like what opportunities are going to be opened for um you know for for my for myself and my teams as part of this i've always been excited about uh, making the lives of developers better, making people um, more productive, more happy when they're using the tools. Mm. I'm I'm a big fan of like software's ability to, uh, you know, pull people uh, who don't have access to resources out of poverty. If we could get software into the hands of more people, or the ability to create software into the hands of people in you know underserved communities in uh, you know, poor countries, uh, what have you, poor communities, like, you know, that really excites me. I think, you know, we want to continue building tools that are, uh, accessible and inclusive and that gets really motivated. You know, that's kind of what's next for me is to keep, you know, (laughs) during a regulatory period, keep my head down business as usual. But once the, you know, the world opens up there, you know, to really continue thinking about what can we bring to the world uh, that hasn't seen before. Well, that's great. Phil, make sure you keep uh, keep us informed and come on back soon. Oh, I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, I got to make that 17 uh, club. <laughs> it's coming. I know it's you coming. know it is. You're in a rare, <laughs> rarefied world. I, I got to change up the titles on your shows because there's only so many GitHub update, GitHub greatness, <laughs> GitHub goodness. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Phil's well, getting well, again. Well, well, well. 
<laughs> hack fights back. That's what the next one's going to be. Get get hacked. Get hacked. That's it. All right, Phil. Thanks a lot. It's been great as always. As always, my pleasure, gentlemen. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.